Welcome to Inside Seaweed, the podcast looking deep into the seaweed industry through the stories of pioneers, entrepreneurs, and innovators. My guest today is Sam Garwin, Director of Market Development at GreenWave. Sam has a lot of experience in building sustainable supply chains and developing socially responsible business models. Through her consulting firm, she developed market-based solutions for regenerative food companies. And having joined GreenWave, she now leads efforts to establish markets for seaweed farmers. This episode is absolutely packed with nuggets of information. So get yourself a notebook, get ready to rewind, re-listen to some of the segments. You'll thank me later. Please enjoy my conversation with Sam Garwin. Hi, Sam. Hi. Welcome to Inside Seaweed. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with you. Yes, yeah, great to have you here. I want to start with um, generalization. And in a way, I, I kind of hope that many people in the audience will disagree with me. And I, I do encourage you guys to get in touch and let me know uh, if your experience is different and, and why uh, my contact details are in the show notes. So the, the broad brush statement is something like most seaweed entrepreneurs are working at uh, a part-time job or have some other form of income to sustain themselves. So that's the starting point. Questionable, but that's the starting point <laughs> I want to go with. Why do you think that is? And, and, and this is something that you would recommend as a strategy. <laughs> um, well, uh, I'll start off by saying that, that my perspective is very much um, US and Canada centric, as that's where Greenwaves work is focused. And I, and I would hesitate to make recommendations about what anyone should do for their, for their uh, personal sources <laughs> of income. However, I will say that, that, you know, cost of living around the world, but in the U.S. Uh, especially has, it has increased dramatically in the past five years. And there are many people in all industries that are, that are working multiple jobs. That said, um, you know, similar to many other forms of agriculture, seaweed is seasonal. So there's only active work at certain times of year on the farming side. And, and farmers on land deal with this seasonality through diversification, right? So they're cultivating different crops. They might be raising both plants and animals. And that's to ensure that they have both work and also income year round. And also because many of these crops are beneficial to one another. And so the same thing is true on water, in the water. The more a farm is diversified across different species, such as seaweed and shellfish, the more viable it's going to be for that business to support someone year round. And many farmers do come to seaweed from fishing. So in a way, you could think of the, the seaweed as being a diversification of an existing business, which is fishing. And, you know, I, and I would also say that, that unlike farms, hatcheries, processors and value added product companies are much more likely to have worked year round, both because they have easier access to capital for various reasons and because you need to have a presence in the market throughout the year to build a brand. So I would say that, first of all, that the, that the part-time nature of the job is not necessarily a bug. It might be a feature of the, the industry uh, as it relates to other things people might be doing and as it relates to the seasonality of agriculture and aquaculture overall. Do you think it might be changing as the industry evolves? Or, or is it just something that might be just inherent? It definitely depends on what, which role we're talking about. I think that, that uh, again, on the farming side, it's hard to get away from the seasonality of it unless you are cultivating multiple species. 
for all the other businesses in the ecosystem, I think that as the industry matures, as there's more supply available, and as we get better at stabilization techniques, which allow you to use seaweed throughout the year, I would expect those businesses to be more uh, more active throughout the year. And certainly it'll be, you know, there will be periods of more activity and less activity, but yeah, I would expect to see them become year-round operations. Yeah, the seasonality point, there's not much we can do about it, but I want to pick up on something you just said, which is the, the multiple species element. I don't know, it's not something we wanted to necessarily cover today, it's, it's, it gets a bit technical, but in your perspective, how, how far along are we with that? And do you see that as something that the industry should aim toward? Well, I, yes, I do. I mean, Greenwave is a big proponent of integrated multitrophic aquaculture. So, you know, shellfish and seaweed, and that's that's for income reasons, for income just diversification reasons, but also because there are mutual benefits to cultivating seaweed and shellfish in close proximity to one another. When it comes to multiple species of seaweed specifically, we are already seeing some farmers who are doing that. We have folks um, in Alaska who are growing sugar kelp, bull kelp, and alaria. And that has been a really great opportunity to, for them to test what the market wants, um, for them to test how those different species absorb or end up containing various different levels of nutrients. And so I do think that the industry will head in that direction. There's also some folks in Maine, as I'm, as I'm sure you know, who are testing out methods of nori cultivation. So so I do see this as something people are interested in and, and a direction that, that the industry will Will head. Taking the, the perspective of, say, an aspiring seaweed entrepreneur, it could be anything, it could be if somebody wants to set up a farm or it could be somebody that wants to even something like develop a software for the seaweed industry or a, a, a final product using seaweed as an ingredient. But the, the, the sort of the core theme would be that it's someone who wants to contribute to the positive environmental impact that seaweed can provide. But ultimately, although in principle, this is a very good starting point, ultimately there is a, an underlying need to start a business that works and, and that, that is profitable in the end. So from your point of view, what are, what are the key considerations in creating such a, a seaweed startup? Yeah, that you bring up a great point. I mean, these our businesses, a seaweed startup, no matter how altruistic or, or mission-based it is, has to make money in order to survive, in order to keep doing the thing it's doing. So we do, I do, consider financial sustainability a part of sustainability. And to that end, you know, it's a seaweed startup has to take into account many of the same considerations that any startup does. So you start with, who is your customer? What need or problem are you addressing? And you need to make sure you don't lose sight of that component. You know, it's great to have a mission. It's great if your mission and your value proposition align. But, it, you know, if, you, if you're not solving someone's need or, or addressing someone's need or solving a problem, ultimately your product will not be successful. I think seaweed startups also really need to take a hard look at the supply chain and identify where the gaps are. And we're going to be talking a lot more of this throughout about this throughout the next hour. Um, but there are gaps in the supply chain and it's good to be clear eyed about those gaps and have a plan for how you're going to fill them, whether that's by building it yourself, you know, partnering with someone else to fill those gaps, but the gaps aren't going to fill themselves. So they need to be addressed. And then in terms of making money, how is the company going to add sufficient value 
to the seaweed or to whatever form of seaweed they're they're purchasing to cover your costs and you know have a little left over. And that could be through physical transformation of the seaweed through processing. It could be through services of various kinds, or it could be just through you know storytelling and branding and talking to consumers. And that's a really important piece of the value chain that I think everyone is still working to figure out is how do we make people want this stuff? Or, or how do we identify uh, or uncover needs people didn't even know they had in the first place? And then after that, I, I would say there are a few seaweed specific questions that I would that I would say seaweed startups need to think about, such as what species do you intend to work with? Um, and that's probably, again, that has to be driven by your customer needs, by the ultimate product that you're creating. But if we we, we talk to a shocking number of companies at GreenWave who, who don't even know what, what species they're after, which really, once you know what species you're after, you start to understand some a few constraints. And in this case, I think the constraints are helpful to start narrowing down some of the operational realities of what your business is going to look like. You know, species determines geography, which if you're the closer you are to working with the raw seaweed, the more that geography is important because you're going to need to deal with the logistics of getting it out of the water, of making sure you're handling it properly to maintain the high quality. And so, you know, thinking about where your company is physically going to be located relative to supply is going to be really important. And then, of course, how much seaweed are you going to require? And right now, again, as we're going to talk about a lot more, lining up supplies is uh, a bit of a challenge because of this sort of chicken and egg situation that we're in right now, where buyers are not seeing existing supply, but farmers don't want to invest in growing their farms unless they have a committed buyer. So there's a lot of work to do there. In that chicken and egg situation, do you think one problem is better than the other as a problem to have? What I mean by that is, obviously, they're both problems, you know, demand and supply, and both need to progress together and, and both are equally in need of innovation and attention. But is there an argument to say that one of the two is a better, easier problem to have? From my perspective, we as a society expect farmers to take on an awful lot of risk. And the reality is it's much harder for a farmer to raise capital than it is for a value-added company to raise capital. You know, right now in the U.S., there is no crop insurance for seaweed that we've heard that it's coming from the USDA. They presented at a the National Seaweed Symposium saying that it will be an option soon. But you know, right now there there's a lot of risk for a farmer to invest in growing their farm. And from a buyer's side, you know, I think we're we're really trying to encourage better, more equitable practices. And that includes the buyers and, and other folks further down the supply chain sharing both the risk and reward with farmers. So to answer your question more directly, from from my perspective, the easier problem to solve is for people further down the supply chain, the buyers to make commitments that they intend to follow through on with farmers so that farmers have some assurances as they go invest in gear and buy seed and that sort of thing. Is there any other consideration, maybe looking at a farmer versus a processor versus a product manufacturer, anything in particular that you consider important in terms of the initial considerations? Yeah, there, there are a few specific things. So as a farmer, first of all, I highly recommend checking out um, the Green Wave Regenerative Ocean Farming Hub for an entire course on this topic of considerations to getting started. You know, first and foremost, getting some hands-on experience on someone else's farm to make sure it's something you really want to do. This is, this is cold, hard work, requires mariner skills. There are startup costs. There's uncertainty and risk, as we were just talking about. 
those are inherent to doing anything in collaboration with, with Mother Nature. And then, of course, once you get started, you need to find a site, you need to design a farm, you need to set up a business entity, secure a lease and permit, and all of that is even before you put a single piece of gear in the water. So I think for folks who, who might have an idyllic view of, of what it looks like to farm, there's I, I would Greenwave is sometimes in the unfortunate position of busting that that bubble for people and, and helping them see that there's actually a lot of paperwork, a lot of planning involved. You know, it can be amazing once you're out there on the water, once you make do your first harvest, but there's a lot of upfront considerations before you even get started. Sorry to jump in. Do, do you get yeah, that a lot? You you get that a lot where you, you have to sort of perform a, a bit of a reality check on people and, and burst the bubble. <laughs> We do. I mean, yes and no. There's there's a huge amount of interest in seaweed and seaweed farming right now. You know, we we had before we opened our ocean farming hub, we had a wait list of eight thousand people for our farmer training program, which at the time was only accepting ten people per year. So that's why we created the hub to kind of speak to these eight thousand people and say, okay, you, you want to know what this is about? Here's what this is about, and with we had this um, how to start a kelp farm course last year. It was a huge number of participants that started out. And as we went through the course, you know, that number dropped and dropped and dropped. And and that's fine. That's what we expected. I, I think that it's in a lot of our society, we've we've come to get used to these like office jobs, right? And and food production, agricultural work is not that. And so there's a lot, there is a bit of a reality check when it comes to, you know, what, what does it actually mean to be a seaweed farmer? Um, and what we hope is that, it, it, you know, Greenwave's goal is that those people don't just drop out of the seaweed industry altogether. Maybe they're not going to be farmers, but there's tons of work to be done. As you point out, you could start a software company that supports the industry. You could become a processor or a buyer or a distributor, or there's so many other roles and we really do need, need all hands on deck right now. So part of my job in the market development program is to help capture some of those people who aren't going to be farmers necessarily, but could still be really uh, valuable contributors in other areas of the value chain. Okay, fantastic. Let's talk about the market then. Okay. Because I think you've, you've already mentioned seaweed has gained a, a lot of popularity in the West, at least lately. Mm -hmm. It's definitely much more present in mainstream media and social media. However, product and market introductions seem to be lagging behind expectations. First of all, do you, would you agree? And if so, why do you think that is? I think that expectations are always, um, oftentimes we think that things are just going to take off the way that like a, a software company takes off, right? But the reality of, again, of agriculture is part of the nature of physical work and, and physical stuff that needs to be grown and then moved from point A to point B is that it, it doesn't quite have the same, it can't be expected to grow in the same way that a piece of software does, which, which has no physical requirements. So, so that's what I would say on the expectation side is that agriculture is not software. From, you know, why is that? I think that, again, there's sort of a disconnect in terms of the, the supply and the demand. So a lot of farmers are coming at seaweed from a fisheries mindset. And so they are expecting or, or their experience from fisheries is that they should be able to farm their seaweed and then drop it off with a tender or a buyer and get paid for it and walk away. Right. So they're, they want to be able to farm and sell their wet, raw agricultural commodity. The problem is that value added product companies all the way at the other end of the supply chain are not looking to buy a wet, raw agricultural commodity. They're looking to buy a stabilized product that's in a consistent format, quality and availability spec. 
So there's this gap where people are producing seaweed in format A and people want format seaweed in format B, but this stabilization and, and primary processing part of the, of the value chain is missing. And that's preventing the product grown by the farmers from actually reaching the market. I just want to jump in on this one because I think it's really, it's a very interesting point. And I was wondering, is it the same in land agriculture or is aquaculture or seaweed farming any different than that? It's very similar to a lot, to almost any other form of, of agriculture. You know, if uh, prior to working with Greenwave, I actually did a lot of work in this, in the regenerative meat space. Huh. And similarly, slaughterhouses are a huge bottleneck for, especially for smaller and medium scale farmers. Yeah. In order to, there's, there's not enough spots to begin with. There's a lack of skilled labor. There's a lack of equipment that's, that services those kinds of farms. And, you know, you have a very, um, you have a, a live animal. So being able to, un, to estimate how much that animal weighs is is really challenging, similar to a lot of problems we have on farms right now, where farmers think they have some a certain amount of seaweed, and then it turns out they have another amount of seaweed, and that kind of messes up the, the buyer dynamics. And then it's really perishable. So, you know, the the unless you're stabilizing seaweed or meat in a, in a way that is that makes it essentially shelf stable, then you're stuck paying for cold storage which just adds to the to the costs that are on these products. And so that's just a meat example, but but you know there's also examples with with grains. I mean, grains all are ready to harvest at the same time. They have to be a certain level of dryness in order to be able to be stored. They need to not have pests in them. And if there's one rain right before you're supposed to harvest, it can mess up the entire thing and you've just spent all those those and there's actually in the grains industry some really interesting uh, they call them custom harvesters who where no one grain farm, since they're so big, can invest in the cost of the, the combines and, and all the equipment needed to harvest. And so there's actually entire separate companies that, that come in and harvest all the grains and they just move from farm to farm to farm. So in any case, I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but that's just to say that. Oh, but it's interesting. Yeah, the stabilization and primary processing bottleneck is a thing that that almost every agricultural industry struggles with. This is not unique to seaweed, but you know we've been doing this for a lot less time here in the West, so so we don't have that infrastructure, we don't have that equipment. Exactly, in the West at least, agriculture had a quite a bit of a head start compared to aquaculture. Right. So, is there anything anything we can learn from? land agriculture that can maybe be replicated or adapted to seaweed? Yeah, well, so I guess I'll, I, I can first talk about what we're seeing, how people are addressing this now. So if you're going to be a buyer in the seaweed space, again, you have to figure out how you're going to get stabilization and processing done. It's not an option. It's, it's got to get done somehow. And so some folks... For example, um, Atlantic Sea Farms, the you know the largest buyer in the U.S. right now, have decided to go the build route. So they're they're taking on investor money. They build a custom seaweed processing facility to transform seaweed into wholesale products and their own CPG line, and that gives them a lot of control over their product. And also, they're taking on a lot of risk there with money and with you know they uh, are responsible for that entire processing chain now. Others uh, are doing a hybrid kind of build partnership model. So where they might buy and develop SOPs for seaweed specific machinery, but then partner with an existing processor like of, of fish or of produce to house and operate the equipment during the necessary times of year. And so that's a little bit less capital intensive, right? Because you're, you're yes, you're still buying the equipment, but you're not building out a whole facility, which you then own and operate and have to staff and all of that. 
And both of those models exist in agriculture as well. You know, I would say that with creating a new industry from the ground up, we both have an opportunity and a responsibility to look at how land-based agriculture has done it and decide which of the things that land-based agriculture has done are are good and, and should be replicated and, and which of them maybe were mistakes and we want to make sure we don't do that again. And so one of the things that I think at Greenwave we're really conscious of is the industrial metaphor for agriculture. So the idea that that industrial agriculture is at its core, looking at factories and, and at industry and pure capitalism <laughs> as the model. So this is large farms, vertical integration, ownership from afar. And But we've only had this concept for about 200 years, and it may have become the default metaphor, but it's not the only one, and it's not necessarily the best one. So a lot of times we try to shift the, the metaphor of, so what would it look like if we had a regenerative metaphor? And the, at the core of that would be, at the core of regenerative aquaculture or agriculture is to look to nature and say, well, how does, how does nature do it? How can we work with nature instead of against it? And nature doesn't scale through consolidation. There is no example of like a vertically integrated ant colony, right? Like it just doesn't exist. <laughs> um, nature scales through replication. So it, it finds something that works and then it does it again and again and again with small tweaks to account for differences in geography, other species in the ecosystem, et cetera. And that's what results in biodiversity, which in turn results in resilience. So if an ant colony on my street gets destroyed because someone dumps chemicals on it, you know, the one over there is not affected. And as we saw with coronavirus, for example, replication is a very effective scaling strategy. So that is a virus that scales through replication and successfully, you know, got to the entire world. So I think we kind of got to this by talking about processing, but but with all aspects of looking to land-based agriculture, I think it's important to apply a really critical lens and ask, is this something that should be copied or should we try to do it differently this time? I, I really like your um, the point you made that nature doesn't vertically integrate, which is something we see a lot, even in, in the seaweed industry, especially in this particular moment where a lot of companies are trying to do everything and are trying to, to vertically integrate as much as possible. Right. And to be, I want to be clear that I'm not, I, I'm not necessarily saying that that's always a bad decision. I think that especially in a time when the value chain is not very well developed, where we don't have specialization yet along the value chain, it's often necessary to at least partially vertically integrate. But I think, again, it's, it's sort of like looking at that with very, really, really clear open eyes and saying, is this a, you know, is this a, a bridge to get us where we want to go? Or is this the, the ultimate long game? Do we, do we always want to be vertically integrated? Is, do we want this much risk? Do we want this much consolidation? I think it's just important to to constantly be reevaluating that. Definitely, and it, it comes at a cost, and I guess it's it's a balance, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Going back to the market development piece, mm -hmm. we touched on quite a few interesting points. Uh, I don't know if there's anything left that we want to cover. I think one thing I would be really keen to understand is, from your point of view, if there's there's anything that individual seaweed entrepreneurs can do to bridge the gap between the sort of going back to the original point, the popularity of seaweed versus the potential or perceived lack of products and, and market introductions. Is there anything that individual seaweed entrepreneurs can do to plug those gaps? 
Yeah, well, I think first is to recognize that that no one is going to be able to do it alone. So yes, ind- individuals have a role to play, but ironically, their role should be in looking to form long-term partnerships within the seaweed ecosystem. So, you know, going back to that idea of, of profitability, the entire value chain needs to, everybody's got to make money in that or nobody makes money, right? That's sort of how a value chain works. If one piece of that value chain fails because they're not making enough profit, then everybody has a problem because that, that piece just dropped out and now someone else has to take that on. So I think that a shift from thinking about how can my company make money to how can we collaboratively co-create value across the entire supply chain is needed. And if, you know, if this is going to work, folks who work together need to recognize that this is a shared problem. Making money, everyone making money is a shared problem. So it's not about getting the best deal on a one-off transaction or trying to get the biggest piece of the pie. It's really about long-term partnership to make a bigger pie so there's enough to go around. And this, this could maybe happen through removing unnecessary costs or through adding value, you know, through new products, through better marketing, or any number of other creative solutions. But the point is that everybody, every individual from farmers to value-added companies has a role to play in making that happen, and everyone will benefit from the end result. But if it's sort of like us versus them within a value chain, that's not going to get us where we need to go. I think it's, it's a lot more about buyers looking to farmers and saying, okay, what are the inefficiencies that you see? Or, you know, what would, what would make your, how could we make your life easier? and vice versa. Do you feel there is enough support for the individuals or any tools that might exist for uh, seaweed entrepreneurs around these topics? And it, it could be to nurture partnerships, which you mentioned, and I, and I fully agree, or training, mentoring around these topics that mm-hmm. are more, how do you grow an industry? How do you create a profitable business? Yeah, well, GreenWave does offer value chain coordination services as part of our market development programming. And we also have an app coming out called Seaweed Source, which we can talk more about later, but it's it's designed to help businesses connect with one another and to share real-time business needs or offers. But there's also a growing number of blue economy accelerators, which are designed specifically just to support, uh, I mean, not specifically for seaweed companies, but companies generally working in the, in the aquaculture and ocean space. And so some of the ones we we are big fans of are Sustainable Ocean Alliance, Sea Ahead, Hatch Blue, Investable Oceans, Local Catch, and, and Launch Alaska. Those are, I mean, there's plenty more, but those are the ones that we've crossed paths with recently. And they have a lot of great resources, both in the kind of general business development training arena, and then as well as connections to investors and other folks in the broader ecosystem. In a nutshell, what do you think uh, an entrepreneur would um, get out of these incubators and accelerators? I I'm, I'm just want to paint a picture of what, what are the main benefits? Why is it important for an entrepreneur to consider? Great question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm from, from the ones that we have worked with, and we are developing partnerships with some of these you know, you get oftentimes a little bit of funding up front, which is always nice, but you're always almost always in a cohort. And again, when we're talking about building relationships, I think it's really important for businesses to connect with other businesses in the same space. And obviously there are some things that you can't or won't want to share because it's, it's intellectual property, but I think there's a lot of other information that can and should be shared, especially because it's such a nascent industry. 
you know, things like food safety affect everyone. If, if one seaweed company has a food safety issue, we're all going to have an issue because it's going to be a broader perception that seaweed isn't safe. So I think the cohort aspect of an accelerator is one of the best angles. It's, it's those connections and, mm. and the opportunity to share with peers and to really have that information flow. I think it, it actually results in, in more innovation much more quickly. Just a quick break to remind you of Inside Seaweed newsletter. Would you like to get a super short email from me every month with three actionable insights for your seaweed business? I will keep on searching the seaweed industry for the most important lessons, the most useful conclusions and relevant actions condensed into a half page that I will share with you each month. It's really easy to sign up and just as easy to cancel. If you'd like to give it a try, head over to InsideSeaweed.com. Now back to the interview. In June, I had the great pleasure of attending the Seagriculture Conference in Norway, where I had a chance to hear the thoughts of some of the European players in the industry. And one of the main takeaways was this absolute need to scale up reaching economy of scale, reduce prices for the seaweed biomass. <laughs> In your opinion, how could this work while still allowing small businesses to come into the industry and thrive? One of the things I often see missing from the conversation of scaling up is discussion of how, how we expect that to happen. And so, so I often, I'm left wondering, so do we just expect multinational companies to step in and create Ultra, these ultra large farms from day one, they're just gonna, they're just going to show up and immediately start doing thousand acre farms, or do we want today's small farmers to grow or or you know aggregate to meet demand? And and if the latter, then where's the capital, the infrastructure, and the partners to enable them to do so? So sort of getting back to some of the thing, themes we've been touching on already, you know, we can't scale supply without simultaneously scaling all the other aspects of the supply chain in a coordinated fashion. So you want to scale farming? We also have to scale hatcheries. We also have to scale primary processing equipment and harvest and transportation and storage infrastructure and the number and scale of value-added product companies. And, and so I think sometimes this we put this kind of excess of blame and responsibility on the farmers when in fact the entire ecosystem has to mature and, and there's all this focus on the supply, but but as we've discussed, you know, really it's the stabilization and primary processing that we're missing. And so I, I think that we need to focus less on price reduction and more on value creation. So we're stuck in this kind of scarcity mindset. And what about asking the question, instead of asking, how do we reduce prices so that the few companies that exist today can make their margins work? What, what if we said, well, how do we make seaweed a cash crop so there's plenty of money to go around? Like, how, how do we make it the most valuable crop on earth and put more of the onus on the post-harvest members of the supply chain to create value instead of on the farmers to continually drive down their costs? So that, that, I really that's, like that. That's, that would be my response to, to, to that. Yeah. Um, no, I, I really like that. And, and I do want to dive a deep, deeper into it, if you don't mind, because it's a very different and fresh perspective in many respects. So how would that look like in, in, in practical terms? I'm thinking, how do we make that happen? Yeah. How, particularly, I really like your sort of approach of, okay, 
instead of making seaweed a commodity and, and driving down prices, how about we make seaweed a cash mm -hmm. crop and everybody wins? Yeah, I mean, I do think it means more more investment in the application side of things, in yeah. understanding how do we use seaweed and what are the things that seaweed could either do novelly, like what are the properties or components that seaweed has that nothing else on earth has, but also what could seaweed replace that is very valuable? So what are we using right now that's either unsustainable or yeah, yeah, has a huge carbon greenhouse gas footprint that could be replaced with the most sustainable crop on earth? And uh, that would be very, very valuable going forward. I also think that there are some really kind of unsexy but critical pieces of the supply chain, that stabilization and primary processing bit where whoever figures that out is going to make a lot of money because again the pro we don't it's not that we have a problem growing seaweed. We we know how to grow seaweed. You put it in the water, it grows very well. So to me, the, the ability to scale up is not the issue. It's the ability to get it all out of the water and get it into a format that people want. So if I'm an investor, I get it. It's not that interesting to think about what are you going to do with this tons of biomass, but that is actually the crux of the issue. And if we figure that out, the markets are there. They, they want it in, they want extracts, they want dried seaweed, and so if you think about that piece of the puzzle as like the, think of it as like the, what makes all e-commerce online work? It's like the payment processors, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the payment processors and the people who are doing like image and video buffering. The least sexy things on the planet, right? But those people are making tons of money and everybody uses them because that is the way that we make transactions happen on the internet. And that's the way that we get content to happen on the internet. And so I think those platform plays with seaweed is, is like, what are those bottlenecks? That's where we need investment. And that's where we're going to see a lot of value creation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a good analogy because... A lot of the things you mentioned, you don't necessarily see as a user or as or as a member of the general public. You don't see those elements. They just happen and you sort of take them for granted, but they're sort of, they're hidden and unsexy, but you take that out and everything kind of falls apart. I mean, another thing that I would say is that in order to support small farmers, I do think that, you know, fisheries are not known for their collaborative nature. It is a little bit of an independent <laughs> person who goes out on a boat and becomes a commercial fisherman. And so if we are supporting small farmers in scaling, we need to support them in working collaboratively and working cooperatively and in, in figuring out how they can aggregate supply because you're right, scale, there's no question scale needs to happen. Greenwave is not saying we should be gardening seaweed, right? We, we need to be yeah. commercial farmers, but we need to be doing it in a way where that supply can be aggregated. And that is going to require standards that's going to require farmers maybe owning pieces of critical infrastructure. You know, I was talking about partial vertical integration. Like if we want farmers to be able to capture more value, that might mean them owning pieces of critical infrastructure like seed production and primary processing. And Greenwave has been doing some work in this area in collaboration with farmers because, again, if those are the parts where we're creating value, then ultimately we, we want farmers to have a say in that, to have power in that, to have influence over, over how that goes and, and to have a cut of of the potential profits that result. So in that sense, you do think that the green wave model is still relevant in, in this attempt 
to massively increase production and, and scale up the industry. Absolutely. Small farmers will always be the kind of heart and soul and core of the industry. They have a, they've been doing this for a decade already, at least more than that. They have a base of really practical hands-on knowledge, which you can't just pick up in a book. You know, they have creativity to innovate. They're out there on the water every day. They have the nimbleness to iterate and deploy changes quickly. I think that they're an immense resource and the key will be in figuring out how do we create these these networks. I mean, Greenwave has, has often promoted the idea of a REAP, where you have a, a network of co-located farmers in a region that together supply a land-based group of processors and buyers. And, and figuring out how to coordinate that, whether it's through a formal cooperative structure or in, more informally, is, I think, at the crux of how the small farmer model works. Do you have any further thoughts on how we avoid repeating the same mistakes that land agriculture have made in the process of scaling up, in the process of industrializing? Yeah, I, I think just getting back to that that idea of opportunity and responsibility, at every step of the way, we really try to ask ourselves questions about, is this equitable? What What would it look like if we thought of it if we inverted the idea of, of, you know, farmers on the bottom and put farmers at the forefront and said, actually, farmers first. And how do we, what would it look like if 20 years from now, land-based agriculture was looking at seaweed and said, how do we be more like them? They figured it out. They did it right. And so I think that's just taking that responsibility seriously on a day-to-day level and, and trying to incorporate that mindset into all of our business decisions and in the companies that we have the privilege of working with, making sure that we're kind of pressing them on questions like that and and encouraging them to think a little bigger. Seaweed is such a great crop in a sense that it provides such a wide variety of different applications. And I, I do realize that I'm using seaweed as a very generic term. We would never say that in agriculture. We wouldn't say plants. Exactly. We would say wheat and barley and corn and tomatoes. Yeah. But as an industry, seaweed has a variety of different applications and and therefore products, which exists on a spectrum that goes from the very high margin, low volume products to the very low margin, high volume products. So I always like to take the point of view of a seaweed entrepreneurs. So from their point of view, how should they take this into account when starting up or further down the life of the business, if you think that's relevant? I think the most important thing is to understand what the inputs and outputs of your product or process are, and then sort of figure out where you fit into what other people are doing and and use that to strategically decrease your costs or increase the amount of value you can derive. So thinking about like a 100% utilization approach, because I do think that is a component of of maximizing the value of seaweed. So if we imagine there's no such thing as waste. So if your process to create whatever the thing is that you're selling creates a byproduct, how could you not throw that away and instead figure out a way to sell it to someone else? If you're product requires a particular input format, can you find another business that needs it in the same format so you might be able to approach a primary processor with aggregated demand and say, hey, Mm. both of us need this format. And this is an example of why a cohort is so useful. Like if, if you're talking with other people and you, you know, your input format is not a proprietary secret. It's not. 
Like, no. <laughs> I, it, so, so if you share, hey, we actually need seaweed in this format, and someone else says, hey, me too, that's awesome. That means you have aggregated demand, which could you could take to a co-packer or a processor and say, hey, like, can you make this for both of us and we'll share in whatever costs you, you might have in order to put it into that format. So yeah, I, I think that the getting creative with inputs and outputs and, and talking to other people and understanding which other businesses you could be either supplying or buying from is, is helpful when getting started. Okay. So if I understand what you're saying correctly, it's almost like, it sounds like there's, there may be more money left on the table. Yeah. Yeah. It's, or even thinking about a blended margin of some kind. So if you're valorizing everything, then it doesn't all need to be super high margin. And I'm not even necessarily talking about creating like a massive portfolio of products, but just like, can you make sure that whatever you pay money for as an input, if you, if you're buying, I mean, the simplest examples, if you're buying raw, wet seaweed and you are making a dried product, you have water coming out of that seaweed water, right? Like, are you sure that nobody wants that seaweed water? What's in that seaweed water? Like what are if you're letting anything go down the drain or go into the garbage, you're missing an opportunity to valorize it somehow. That's almost guaranteed. So I think if you think about a blended margin, as in like, I have one product that is higher margin and I have another product that's lower margin, but maybe higher volume, you're going to end up with a blended margin, something some, somewhere in the middle. And that can actually be really helpful to protect you in the case that like something goes terribly wrong with your primary process. So you you end up with only being able to market your byproduct, for example. Well, that's not your ideal scenario, but at least you made some money instead of no money and you covered some of your costs. Is it a given, do you think that small businesses would start with more toward the high margin side of the spectrum and by doing so, letting bigger companies develop the high volume, low margin products or not really? I mean, scale is definitely an important consideration when it comes to that. You know, we've seen some kelp farmers in the Northeast be super successful in the high margin, low volume route. So they're, they're going direct to restaurants or consumers with an ultra fresh, extremely high quality, beautiful packaged product and commanding as high as $20 per wet pound. I mean, it's amazing and it's, and it's worth every penny, um, but that requires a lot of labor in the form of sales and marketing work. And it can be challenge, challenging to scale that type of experience. And it's also really not feasible in places that are further away from urban centers. Like if you're in Connecticut, you can access Boston, Providence, New York, all in, in a day, less than a day's drive. So with uh, higher concentrations of restaurants and wealth, you can, you can do that kind of high margin, low volume route a lot more easily than in more remote areas. I do think the low margin but high volume route is it's important for everybody to have a plan about what they're going to do if seaweed arrives in a different quality or format than, than what you had hoped for. So even a company that focuses on grade A kelp for direct to consumer food sales should have a buyer lined up for grade B or grade C kelp, like in the case that there's an early biofowl set or something like that. Mm. You know, it's farming. Quality issues are going to happen and they often aren't anybody's fault. So you might as well plan for it. And uh, this protects the business financially and it also protects business relationships. It's really harmful when a load of seaweed has to be rejected outright. It's not good for the buyer. It's not good for the farmer. Um, so having having the plan B is really important. And But you're right, there are certain applications, whether it's, um, you know, biostimulants or animal feed that are 
bought and sold in higher volumes anyway and, and tend to have lower margins. And so this is an area where larger companies are going to have a leg up just because they're bigger, but also where farmers who collaborate, who, who have a way of aggregating supply could have access to that market as well. Should businesses in the seaweed space try to build a brand on a specific product and in other words, specialize on what they're really good at, or should they try and develop a portfolio of different products and, and income streams? You know, the, the reason why I really care about this, yeah. uh, this, this general point is that marketing seems to be so important, yeah. especially, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, we should try and add value and, and, and make seaweed a, a valuable crop rather than a commodity. And mm -hmm. that requires people really, in my mind, really building good marketing around seaweed, building brands around seaweed. And I see those as specialized brands, but I don't know if that's something I have in mind and it's incorrect or it's a, a perception, mm -hmm. a false perception type thing, or whether it's true that brands should, should focus, should try and, and really do what they're really good at. Well, I, I do think it, it can, in some ways, it ties back to the very first thing we were talking about, which is what, mm. your, what do your customers want? Sometimes you think you've got the thing and it turns out it's not the thing. And so you have to be willing to take that market signal and pivot. I mean, we one of the companies we've worked really closely with on the CPG side is Akua. And Akua started out with kelp jerky. And if you've heard Courtney talk recently, their CEO and founder, she she jokes about how they created a product that nobody wanted. I mean, they tried it for years and it and it just never really took off. And they finally said, you know what? What what do people actually eat? What do Americans eat? And the answer was burgers. And so they made a kelp burger and they just launched a partnership with Nickelodeon and has SpongeBob on the package. Talk about good marketing, right? Yeah. Trying to get it. And so they've pivoted from trying to make this kind of healthy snack for adults to targeting kids who, you know, whose parents want them, want to, them to eat climate friendly and eat healthy and all of that. And um, I think it's a brilliant pivot. So, you know, I think you can specialize, but I would warn against specializing with blinders on and going too far down a road without being willing to hear the market signals when they are speaking to you. And I think that being willing to switch or to test out different ideas is gonna be really important for any startup, CBD or not, you know? Do you think as an industry, we need to get a bit better at listening to the customers? I do. I do. I think that, you know, time and time again, people are telling us that they don't want to eat seaweed <laughs> in the formats that we're giving it to them. So we've got to get more creative. Lecturing people has never, ever worked. You know, when Nike sells shoes, they don't give you a list of features in the construction of their shoe. They don't tell you about the rubber. They don't tell you about any of that. They just say that it's going to make you the best athlete. They say, just do it. You know, this is the kind of mind shift I think that some of us working in the mission driven you know food and agriculture space need to make is that the the mass market generally does not care about the same things that we do and that's okay and we have to be okay with marketing a product on slightly you know or maybe entirely different 
qualities than the ones that got us into this industry to begin with. And that's fine. That's how, that's how marketing works. And that's what it means to speak to your customer and to meet them where they are. Um, not everybody is going to become a, a climate crusader, you know? Yeah, completely. Right. That's such an important point as someone who has been drawn to seaweed because of the huge potential that it has to do good and help with climate change and, you know, the environmental crisis, it's difficult to switch your mentality and flip it around and say, okay, that is the problem I want to solve, mm -hmm. but that's not the, the problem my business will have to solve. Exactly. And that is, is such a, a sort of mental barrier that I think a lot of us are struggling with. Yeah. One, one way that I've seen this play out or, or one example of an application where this is sort of in the forefront is a lot of the folks who are working on plastic alternatives utilizing seaweed, they are very driven to reduce the plastics problem, reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, it's all of this stuff. But when they're creating their product, one of the main criteria for whether their product is going to make it in the market is whether they can get their material into a format that works with existing plastics manufacturing equipment, whether it works with existing extrusion technology. If it does not work in that context, it's never, ever, ever going to succeed as a business, no matter if it's the most sustainable, lovely material on the planet. So they're just, you know, understanding what your customers need in order to say yes, in order to even give it a shot, I think is, is again, the most critical part of running any business, not just a seaweed business. You, uh, hinted at this earlier, but I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a bit more about this new app that Greenwave has launched on the 11th of July this year and is called Seaweed Source. So could you tell us a bit more about it and maybe what are the reasons that drove you to building this app? Absolutely. So, you know, as we've discussed, the seaweed industry is still very young and a lot of collaboration is needed to get seaweed from seed to sale. And over the past eight years, we've really learned that transparency and information sharing and connections within the industry really leads to faster innovation than almost anything else. And so we, we have this regenerative ocean farming hub, which has been up for a little over a year now. And that was built as a place for 101 level curriculum to be shared and broader community conversations to happen. But Seaweed Source is a place for active and established businesses to learn about one another, connect and, and really you know, do business is, is the hope. It's the joke internally is it's, it's like a dating app for the seaweed business. So that's, that's what we're uh, <laughs> nice. for the seaweed industry. That's good marketing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So you, you found that there was a, a gap in linking together and have these different bits of the supply chain talk to each other. Or date. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So farmers are growing seaweed without knowing who they're going to sell it to. And buyers are out there pitching products without a solid plan for scaling supply, particularly in the format that, that they needed. And so we wanted to create an, an app where all of that could just be shared a bit more transparently, a bit more easily. And so we wanted basically the, on this app, companies start by completing a profile, which includes the activities that their business does. So do they produce seed, grow seaweed, process seaweed, mm -hmm. or, or make value-added products? They can share the species that they work with, their current volume capacity, and, and any other information that they, might be relevant. They've got a big text field where you can write anything else. You can upload photos, that sort of thing. And the idea is that 
even for farms who are allergic to marketing, don't want to put up a website, this, this is a way for them to put themselves out there and make themselves available for other companies to connect with them and, you know, discuss relevant opportunities. So it is for obviously seaweed cultivators, but by the sound of it, it's for everybody in the chain. For everybody in the chain. Yeah. So we, we released a very bare bones version of this about a year ago as part of a USDA grant. And at that point it was just for buyers and farmers. And as we've been discussing this whole hour, we realized there's a whole lot of other people involved yes. with, with getting that seaweed to the customer who need to be included because it doesn't work without them. So this new release that's coming out on, on the 11th includes uh, support for hatcheries, farmers, processors, buyers, and really any other business that's actively producing or buying farmed seaweed in the US or Canada. Fantastic. And I'm really excited to see this. Hats off to Green Wave for putting this together. I have no doubt it will gain a lot of momentum and, and benefit a lot of people in the industry. Is there anything more worth mentioning about maybe how it works? Well, I guess I'll share that, that in addition to these profiles, so there's multiple ways of viewing the profiles. There's a map so you can actually see geographically where all these companies are located in the U.S., which is going to be, I think, pretty important. Again, we were talking about when you start up a company, you need to know geographically whether you have everything you need. Do you have the, the farmers, the processors all in one place? So you can use the map to search for people. There are filters that you can apply based on, again, the species, the volume, or that sort of thing. There's also a search function. And then um, we have a slew of other features that are going to be released shortly after the launch, including a feature we're calling listings, which is going to allow businesses to post real-time requests or offers to others on the platform. So maybe that's about excess supply. Maybe that's about a hatchery that has is announcing that their seed for the year. Uh, maybe it's about a, a processor that that wants to offer uh, co-packing services this coming year when previously they've only been doing their own stuff. Um, so we're, we're really interested in seeing how people use that, that listings feature. And then we're, yeah, there's some other features that are going to be coming out shortly after that, but we're, we're really going to be open to people's feedback. We want it to be an industry centric tool. Cool. How can people get the app and start using it? Yes, uh, you can head to our website, look for Seaweed Source, and click on that. You'll be taken to a page where you can submit an application. All right. Before we wrap this up, Sam, was there anything else you wanted to cover today? Uh, I think we covered everything. I, I will say these were really great questions. It was so nice. Thank you. And it was really kind of fun to have these questions that were like so focused on market development. And um, cool. so, yeah, I found that really fun. Thank you for putting effort into writing them. My pleasure. So great to hear that. Uh, any final message or call to action for the audience? Oh, good question. Don't, you know, don't feel like you have to, but if there is anything. Yeah. Always happy to spread the word. Well, uh, my call to action Just make sure is, it's a good one. <laughs> is, uh, is for those of you who are active in the, in the space to think about that responsibility and, and opportunity to, to make seaweed the best and the best example of agriculture or aquaculture that, that the world has. I think we, we have an amazing opportunity here um, and we can, all, we can all build something pretty incredible together. So... Are you planning to be at the Secret Culture Conference US in Portland this September? Yes, I am. In fact, I'm going to be giving one of the keynotes, apparently. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. be there. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. Oh, awesome. That'll be great to see you. 
in in real life. Definitely, definitely. And I, I completely, I've been looking forward to talking to you uh, for a long time since I read some of your material and watched some of the training videos that uh, you guys have done. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that's somebody I want to have a chat with. Oh, thank you. Because of the perspective, yeah, and then a lot of the things that, that you sort of curated and and uh, and covered. So I'm very, very grateful that we made this happen. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. Anytime.